sermon text reading this morning. Our sermon text reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. If you want to turn there, the words will also be on the screen. Again, that's Genesis 6, 1 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you can be seated as we pray together. Father of heaven, we are so grateful uh, to be here again um, this morning. Um, We don't take that lightly or for granted this year, and uh, we are so grateful for the opportunity to be together and to hear your word together, to proclaim your truth together, to sing together, to pray together, to give together. Lord, we are thankful for all of those things. Father, we're, we're grateful um, for how you were uh, able to move in our first service and pray that you would be pleased to do the same here uh, as we, we gather as, as one church and two times. And I pray that you would um, be with uh, the preaching of your word and the hearing of your word so that the ultimate effects of your word would be clear and evident in our lives. God, we pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen. So back uh, a few months ago in the smoke-filled Zoom meeting room where it happens, um, we were discussing what we were going to preach after we finished our series, our summer series on the Beatitudes. And, you know, a few things were suggested, and one of the things that was suggested was Genesis 1 through 11. And while we, we, we had some good thoughts about that, there was also a lot of hesitancy about Genesis 1 through 11. And you may think, why? Why would you have any hesitancy about Genesis 1 through 11? I mean, you have creation, you have the fall, you have Noah's Ark, you have the Tower of Babel. There's just so much interesting stuff there. There's just so much uh, material um, to preach from there. Well, this passage is one. Uh, this passage is well as a few others, you know, that we had in our mind. Um, this passage is actually very, very difficult. Um, if you didn't know, my, my passage assigned to me is technically um, Genesis 5, 1 through 6, 8, um, which is Genesis 5, 
is a genealogy. So it wasn't like I could go to Genesis 5 and, and find more here. The first thing I did this week was I sat down and I wrote every question that I didn't know the answer to. Um, that, was, that was the first thing I did. Um, so here's the list. Um, number one, why are there similar names in Cain's and Seth's genealogies? Number two, what does it mean that Enoch was not? Number three, does 120 years mean that there'll be 120 years until the flood or that people will only live about 120 years on average now? Number four, who were the sons of God and the daughters of man? Number five, who were the Nephilim? Number six, how does the Nephilim make a later appearance in the Torah if they were wiped out by the flood? Number seven, why did God decide to flood the earth? And number eight, why would God flood the earth if he knew it wasn't going to completely eradicate sin? Number nine, how could God regret making something that he had called good? Number 10, why did Noah find favor before God? So that was the first thing I did this week was make that list. And I only pointed out to you to show you that there are several different branching paths that you can take in these, these different questions um, here in this passage. But regardless of which of those branching paths you take, the main point of this passage, the main thrust of this passage is actually, I think, super clear. It's that sin leads to contagious spread, calloused corruption, and complete destruction. I read that again. Sin leads to contagious spread, callous corruption, and complete destruction. That is, without a doubt, the catchiest sermon outline you'll hear from me all year. Um, but even though it's catchy, it's not meant to be glib or pithy. Because the arc of Genesis 1 through 11 comes to a climax here. We see sin working itself out in its uh, most devastating form. Sin is a bit like a pack of wild dogs in a daycare. Um, and what I mean by that is that it's not a problem that just kind of works itself out, right? The longer it's there, the worse it gets. A pack of wild dogs in a daycare is not a problem that just kind of peters out, right? It's a problem that has to have intervention to be solved. And the longer they're there, the worse things are. So a lot in the same way, when we left off in our last sermon, we had left off in the first murder. And now things are worse, not better. Things have only gotten worse over time. We leave the realm of personal anecdote of these isolated incidents, this, you know, one fruit-eating incident, the, this one murder, and now in Genesis 6, we've entered the realm of global, universal corruption. It's now we're looking at the situation of sin as being very deep within us, very wide among us. It's deep and wide, like the Sunday school song we all learned growing up. Deep and wide, deep and wide, there's an unimaginable fountain of depravity flowing deep and wide in every person's heart. Um, or at least that's the version I learned. Um, I don't know about you. So before we get into the passage that we're going to focus on, which is Genesis 6, 5 through 8, we need to set the table and understand um, how things have gotten to the point that they get in 6, 5 through 8. And we're going to do that with every avid Bible reader's favorite part of Scripture, genealogies. So when we look at uh, Genesis 4, 17 through 32, we see a couple of genealogies. Let me read that for you. 
I'm just kidding. I'm not going to read 470 through 35, 32. But what we see basically is a set of dueling genealogies, you know, like dueling banjos. But we've got dueling genealogies here where there are um, these two lines, one being the genealogy and line of Cain and the other being the genealogy and line of Seth. Now, Genesis uses genealogies in a couple of ways. First, the, the genealogies in Genesis serve as just a bit of a, like, stopgap as a, uh, you know, here uh, is one narrative and here is another. And the genealogy shows us that time has passed and that people have come and go. And so that we shouldn't expect the same circumstances and characters in this side of the on genealogy and then uh, the same characters on the other side that we've entered a bit of a different place. So they serve as a stopgap, but they also make a theological point. Usually when you see genealogies in Scripture, even though they are, I will admit, kind of boring to read, um, they usually do serve a theological point. Like, for instance, the genealogies in the Gospels. In Matthew, um, Christ's genealogy there is meant to emphasize that he comes from David, which emphasizes his kingly rule and reign. And then in Luke's genealogy, it emphasizes that he comes from Adam, which emphasizes um, the inclusivity that all people, even Gentiles, are able to get in on Christ's salvation. So, what is the theological point that's being made by these two genealogies? Well, basically, um, the first genealogy is that of Cain, which is one of sin and evil. Of course, you know how Cain's line begins. It begins with Cain. He is the first murderer. And then it kind of comes to full fruition in um, chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, with Lamech. Lamech uh, is boasting of his accomplishments in 4, 23, 24. So Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zalah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. So there he's boasting of his sinfulness. You have a murderer on each end of this genealogy. This line is meant to um, represent the corruption in the earth, and it is uh, the more corrupt line. But there's also the line of Seth. So in 4, 25 through 26, we see Seth's line introduced to us. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And when you look through Seth's genealogy in chapter 5, you see that Enoch came from this line, someone who walked with the Lord. You see that Noah came from this line. We, we all know about Noah. Um, no need to get into what Noah did. Um, but you see basically that this line was meant to represent the more righteous line, the, the kernel for hope, as opposed to Cain's line uh, with murderers on each end. This meant to um, be the, the wickedness that was on the earth. So you have these two different lines. You have good versus evil, basically. But this comes to an end in chapter 6. 6, 1 through 2, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Um, so we do have to identify who are the sons of God and the daughters of man because this is the first time that language is used. 
and there is some debate about which one it is. And debate's probably a strong word. There's basically just two streams of interpretation. So the first idea about who the sons of God and the daughters of man are, basically that the sons of God are angels, specifically fallen angels, demons, and the daughters of man are humans. So basically in this instance, the sons of God, the demons, see the um, daughters of man as attractive and they take them to be their wives. The support for this view is about 80% around the phraseology sons of God because in other parts of scripture, such as in Job, um, you do have reference to sons of God to be angels, demons, that kind of thing. Um, there's also, I would say, about 20% of this view just comes from the fact that there is a long-standing tradition of people who've interpreted this way, like even some early Jewish, you know, pre-Christian interpreters uh, saw this as being um, sons of God referring to angels, demons, and then um, humans as being the daughters of man. So when Calvin was writing on this, he said, um, I've checked my notes here, uh, it's abundantly refuted by its own absurdity, um, which I have to admit is a great line. Um, I don't recommend using it, but you could use it anywhere, right? You know, anything you disagree with, um, like someone says, I think Christmas music should be played before November, and then you just say, that's abundantly refuted by its own absurdity, right? Um, you know, that's your, your own argument. Well, anyway, uh, I do have to agree with Calvin here, because this is strange. It comes out of nowhere, this interpretation uh, of the angels. It doesn't fit with the rest of the passage, doesn't, doesn't fit with the rest of Genesis, um, honestly. And to be honest with you, there is an interpretation that makes much more sense. So going back to what we were just talking about, you have the line of Cain, the line of Seth. Well, there are many interpreters that see that the sons of God is referring to the line of Seth, the daughters of man referring to the line of Cain. So basically, in this interpretation, the sons of God being that of Seth, Saul, the daughters of man, that of Cain, and uh, came in, in uh, intermarried with them, obviously swapping more than DNA, but, you know, just swapping that propensity for sin. And so you have this, um, you have this kernel, this hope, this dying light of, of, uh, of righteousness for humanity, and then that is extinguished as Seth's line uh, joins Cain in its sin. So obviously at this point, the world is at a tipping point. And God responds by saying the length of man's years will be 120 years. And it's not clear to me whether this is, um, this means that the flood will happen in 120 years or that the average lifespan of a person will be 120 years. I, I tend to think more of this 120 years to the flood, but either way, God has placed a limit here on human arrogance and sin thus far and no further. And so uh, before God decreed the flood, the, the writer of this passage describes the state of the world, what the state of the world was in at this point when sin had affected and corrupted the world. So that'll be our focus this morning as we look at 6, 5 through 8 and see the state of the world and sin. So the first words that this writer uses to describe the state of the world as God judged it is in 6.5a, where it says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that the wickedness of man was great 
in the earth. And you hear that, and you may think, well, the wickedness was great, so that means that the things they were doing were especially egregious, especially awful kinds of sin, and probably so. Um, but I think the point here is that this wickedness of man had spread to every person, that is, spread all over the earth. When you look at 6.1, it says that man began to multiply on the face of the land. And then 6.5, uh, the wickedness of man was great in the earth. I think that's meant to, uh, you know, I think that's meant to be similar, meant to show us that as man multiplied on the face of the earth, wickedness multiplied on the face of the earth as sin spread from person to person as sin tends to do. You think even about in the Garden of Eden where Eve took and ate of the fruit and then what'd she do? She put it in her pocket, you know? No, she handed it to her husband and what'd he do? He took and he ate and that sin spread from one person to another. And as we go on, you see the same thing in Cain's line where he is a murderer and generations down you have um, more wicked fruit come from this line. So sin has a contagious spread. Ultimately, it ends up in a universal spread. Like the second half of verse uh, 5 says that every intention of the thoughts of his heart, uh, man's heart, was only evil continually. Telling us, implying that every person was inclined towards sin. Um, Psalms and Romans uh, tell us as well that every person has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Romans 5 tells us that um, we have each inherited the guilt of Adam. So ultimately... There's no person, not one person alive today, not one person who has ever lived, not one person who ever will live, who has not been affected by the power and the presence of sin. Sin affects all of us. It has become so closely intertwined with our human experience that it's our ever-present reality. It's why we just can't get along with everybody. It's why we frequently fall short of our own expectations. It's why we try so hard to look um, at other people without jealousy or disgust or contempt, and yet we do it again and again, because sin has affected every one of us. This is all of our experience. Ultimately, sin is the true pandemic that will never end. I feel like we've been living in COVID's world for 10 years now. Um, I, like most of you, in January saw, um, you know, the outbreak in China. I was like, I would really appreciate that to stay in China for us to not see a case of that. That didn't happen. I hoped again in March, you know, when it came to, to the coast in Washington, New York, I was like, hope that stays there. Um, it didn't. And so now everybody um, in the world at this point has some level of risk by, of being affected by this virus. And it feels like it's never going to end. Ultimately, we've been doing this for about seven to eight months, and admittedly, that feels like an eternity, but um, seven to eight months, you know, compared to the whole scope of human history, yeah, you know, not so much. So we might be halfway, who knows, but sin, however, has corrupted us for generations and generations and generations and thousands upon thousands of years. It is a plague that has broken each of our hearts and our minds. We crave going back to normal, of course, but what was normal like? You know, normal 
was locked doors at night. Normal was being, having our bags scanned at the airport to see if there's a bomb in them. People being shot every day. Crime and arrest every day. Sin is a long, universal pandemic that has afflicted you, me, and everyone we know and love. So one application of this point, uh, an application of the idea that sin has a contagious spread that spreads from person to person, is that sin can devastate, devastate the culture of a church. Since sin is given to spread, it can absolutely wreak havoc on a community. We see this where sins of the father become sins of the son. We see it in peer groups in high school and in college where uh, sins of these, you know, one, one of the kids, you know, picks up a vice, and then before you know it, um, it's spread through the whole peer group. Um, and with this infectivity, this contagious spread that sin has, it can and will, if given the opportunity, devastate even a community of faith. And so that means um, that a church that's given the gossip or slander can destroy people instead of building them up. A church that's given to lethargy and mission can become a blight to its community instead of a blessing. A church that's given to judgment and legalism can quickly choke the life out of new believers and wither away a long-standing member to an overdried, bitter, and anxious shell of themselves. And if you and I want to be part of a community where people continue to thrive, where those who um, even have yet to join us can come find a place where they can um, thrive and grow, we must continue to fight sin at every turn. That doesn't mean that we need a sin patrol with batons patrolling social media or, you know, trying to get into all um, all the gossip circles so they can confront people over hearsay. It just means that we need to take our sins seriously ourselves and we need to be ready to give a word to our brothers and sisters who might struggle in it we must become a culture where sin where where, um, confession is welcome where um, those who are struggling with sin can find support rather than condemnation or isolation when we do that that is a making of a gracious and sin rejecting culture so sin leads to a contagious spread Sin also leads to a calloused corruption. So the last point is that sin runs wide, that it affects all of us. It also runs deep within us. It affects us very deeply. Second half of 6, 5 says that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Don't let that just run past you. Let me read that again. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, continually. It's really difficult to put things any more emphatically than that. Um, Sin had a universal spread that spread to all kinds of people, but it also had a deep, contagious effect. It was not a mere common cold, if we're continuing the, uh, the pandemic analogy. It was a deeply destructive disease. It is a deeply destructive disease that runs deep within us. Without the intervening influence of the Holy Spirit, we're given the sin after sin. Without our hope of repentance or our return to our garden state, we smile while we sin because sin corrupts us much more than we realize. It's easy to get into autopilot in our lives where we just go from, you know, thing to thing. I mean, occasionally life will slow down when things are 
especially bad or especially joyful and you know we're able to focus in and life kind of crawls by but 99 percent of the time we zip from thing to activity to the thing and as we do so um, we can really miss how deeply sin roots itself into our system and so if we're not engaging in times of uh, regular examination and confession and repentance we can just miss how deeply sin affects our hearts we of course you know will identify some of the most vile sins in our life and repent profusely for those and then we make the mistake of assuming otherwise we're pretty good when the truth is that sin affects us completely it has touched every part of our lives while we're on autopilot it's so easy to miss the fact that uh, we've given so many subtle digs towards other people the fact that we groan at the idea of work the um, hatred that we give um, in just just our, our thoughts that we have day to day sin corrupts and it distorts and it affects us very deeply much more than we realize that means that it leaves us with few options which is probably an overstatement uh, to even say few options because sin creeps up and grips us tightly it warps our minds it clouds our judgment so that we're only inclined to love sin more you think any of those people who were uh whose every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually you think any of these people at any point just said gee you know i think i should pop the brakes on uh this whole sin business no scripture tells us that apart from christ we can do nothing and that sin begets sin within us and that it has affected us deeply and without christ we have no hope so so far we've basically said two things about sin we've said that it has a contagious spread that it leads from person to person that it affects us um, at all that it affects us universally we've also said that it affects us deeply that it affects every part of our life that it clouds our judgment and makes us unable to see ourselves as we really are but as we've described this i mean we've obviously described the state of the world the state of our world as being pretty rough right but so far we've basically talked about things that affect us personally within us there are consequences for sin that are outside of us that happen to us because of our sin sin ultimately leads to complete destruction verses six and seven of chapter six and the lord regretted that he had made man in the earth and it grieved him to his heart so the lord said i will blot out man whom i have created from the face of the land man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens for i am sorry that i have made them so here we see judgment being placed for sin we've talked about how awful sin is but here is judgment here we see we are headed towards a wrecking ball so i want to divide this declaration of judgment into basically two parts two parts out of the things that um, the lord says as he decrees this judgment first sin grieves god second god judges sin so sin grieves god and god judges sin so first we see in uh, verse six that sin grieves god where it says that the lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and in uh, verse seven at the end i am sorry 
that I have made them. And as I was thinking about how to describe how the Lord feels about this sin, it was difficult for me. Um, I, obviously, I arrived at sin grieves God, but I thought at first about sin offends God, right? Sin offends God. And that is technically true, um, but there's also like this connotation of being offended in our culture that has like this, um, I want to speak to a manager vibe um, that obviously the Lord is not exhibiting and he has um, and he has grief over sin. I chose grief because I believe what we see here is a mixture of sorrow and wrath towards sin. Sorrow and wrath that the Lord expresses towards sin. It says that he regretted that he had made man on the earth. The mental image I get of this particular passage is like, a, um, is like an artist who has their painting and they created something in it and they look at it and they shake their head they take out their brush and they just brush over it and it's gone that's the mental image that I get from this the ultimate picture that we are meant to see here is that the Lord is not a robotic judge of heaven and earth that just doles out punishment or blessing based upon our actions he's not a karma machine the Lord is personally involved with us and when we sin is personally affected by our sin. So, um, one thing, one little qualification, one challenge in this. What about this business about God regretting uh, that he made mankind? Um, this raises obvious questions like, how can God regret doing something when he knows all things, um, including the consequences of his actions? And if God regretted doing something, doesn't that mean that he made a mistake? Well, I'll give you my short answer here about, how, uh, about this God and regretting. Um, scripture often describes God using anthropomorphisms, and that is a complicated word for a not-so-complicated idea. It just means that when Scripture describes God, a non-human, it often uses uh, ca human characteristics um, outside of the person of Jesus, of course. But So, for instance, we often read um, that God uh, is able to save with his arm. You know, his, we read that his arm is not too short to save. We read that, uh, we read about God's mighty right hand as a um, description of his power and strength. That doesn't mean that we think that God is literally going to sweep his arm, you know, out and make salvation. Or that uh, his, his power actually, you know, comes from his literal right hand. Well, in the same way, we see the, this human description of regret that is meant to communicate um, the way that sin affects God. Scripture is accommodating our way of understanding the world by using something very familiar to us, regret. Regret being something we all experience. I know, I know we're supposed to pretend that we have no regrets, um, but I mean, I regret like six out of seven of my lunches um, from last week. So I know that's a lie. But anyway, description, the description of regret is something that we are intimately acquainted with, that we are intimately familiar with. We just shouldn't copy and paste our whole experience of regret onto God as a one-to-one -one thing. So we see that sin grieves God, that affects him personally. We also see that God judges sin. And this is pretty straightforward. God is the judge over all the earth. He keeps the earth on its axis. He keeps breath and our lungs. 
He is the king of all that exists, and he must judge the hearts and the lives of mankind. Here, God's kingly reign and his justice lead him to decree the destruction of all people, all men, women, children. So whatever things were like this level, sin grieved the Lord so much, and it brought down this greatest on-the-earth act of judgment that the world has ever seen. We often have this storybook idea of uh, Noah and the flood, where you know, we have the, these mental, like, um, you know, nursery painting, nursery wallpaper uh, pictures of, you know, here's the ark, here's all the animals getting on it. Um, you know, we emphasize the salvation that the Lord brings through the ark, which is a good thing. You know, we're, it's a great picture of the gospel. But we also shouldn't forget that this is an act of judgment, that God is judging the world through this flood. So sin has personal effects for us. Yeah, it corrupts our lives. It has uh, devastating consequences in this life. But ultimately, because of our sin, we are heading towards a wrecking ball. Um, Just as we see judgment given to these people, we all face judgment for our sins. God is the judge over all the earth, and he will not be mocked. So, we had, a, we had a qualification at that last point about uh, sin grieving God. Here's a qualification here. Is God just for flooding the earth? Now, there was a bit, there's a bit of an antenna that goes up when you see, I'm going to blot out everybody, right? Because you're like, ah, was it, you know, was that necessary? You know, was there a, was that really had to be um, that way? Well, we could probably give a whole sermon length uh, defense of this, of God's actions here, um, and go through that like that. But I'm just going to lightning round two things. One, we're not privy to what things were like at that time. Um, we assume we know. We assume that these people were basically like us, but without the smartphones and cars. And uh, so we, we empathize with them and think, ah, did they really deserve that? Well, we don't know what things were like. Um, you know, we think about things like murder, rape, incest, theft. Are all those things possible? Yes, absolutely. They could have even been frequent. It's also quite possible that the things happening were things that we have yet to even imagine, right? Because the flood happened. Um, we simply don't know the details of what happened. It's, it's quite possible that our sense of justice would lead us to agree with God if we were there. We also need to understand how bad our sin is. We tend to normalize our sin because, as the main point of the sermon has said, sin is very normal for us in our existence. It infects every part of our life. It affects every person we know. And so for this level of judgment, it just seems unjust. But we forget that uh, our sin is a continual rebellion against God and his created world. It's a mercy that we keep rolling. And it's perfectly within God's right to stop the bleeding of his precious and originally perfect creation. Our sins are heinous. Let's not forget that. So I said at the beginning of the sermon, we've left behind the personal anecdotes of sin. Now we've come to this big, uh, world-eating saga of sin corrupting all the earth. Patient zero has infected everybody in the world, and we have all been deeply affected. What did that earn these people? Judgment. It earned them the destruction of every man, woman, and child. This is a big mess. Where's the hope here, you know? Are all things lost at this point? 
Picture here is a pitch black room and humanity is fumbling around in pure darkness. But in verse eight, we stumble upon a matchbox with one match inside. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. To be sure, sin has a deep, tight grip on us. Um, it's like a trained attack dog, right? Once it clamps down, it's down. There is, however, one thing that can overcome sin's grip on us. God's grace overcomes sin's grip. This is the testimony of the rest of the chapter, the rest of Genesis, the rest of all of Scripture. God's free and undeserved favor to his people is what overcomes even the deepest, most intractable heart of sin. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why? What about Noah? Well, we know that he was a righteous man, so we have this like implicit assumption that basically because Noah was righteous, God was like, well, I'll just pick the best out of the lot of them and have them build a boat. Noah. You know, and so then he was saved because of his righteousness. But, I mean, how likely is that? Think about what things were like at this time. That such, uh, such action would be necessary. And even if that was the case, do you think that he was righteous enough to merit being the only person to make it through this? No, the only reason that Noah was saved was because of the grace of the Lord. It was love in the midst of the sorrow and wrath. It was grace to an undeserving sinner, that same grace that comes to us now. There's no hope for us to overcome sin's grip outside of God's grace. But reverse of that, there is hope for us to overcome sin's grip because of God's grace. Just as Noah was spared through the waters of judgment for these strips of wood on the ark, God has provided a way of salvation through the strips of wood on which Christ hung. That salvation there carries us through the brutal judgment that we face because of our sin against the Lord. Sin does run deep and wide. It has serious consequences. Sin has a deep grip. But even though sin runs deep and wide, God's grace runs deeper and wider and it is able to overcome sin's grip. 